everybody gather near the doctors in the house. So lend them your ears. The things he can say might even make your day. He might even help your pain go away. The doctor is in the house. The doctor is Dr. Ron, host of Dr. Ron, unfiltered, uncensored, with our special guest today, Mr. Frank Polyalfico. This program contains general medical information. The medical information heard on this program is not advice and should not be treated as such. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this program with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician. Thank you, Feedspot. Uh, weekly, we uh, seem to be making the charts, ladies and gentlemen. We're still in the top 50 doctor podcasts on the web. And I do welcome you with an attitude of gratitude because gratitude, grateful people are happier. They are less depressed. They are less stressed. They are more satisfied with their lives and social relationships. And ladies and gentlemen, an attitude of gratitude not only boosts joy and general life satisfaction it is also the single best predictor of good relationships and benefits both your sanity and your physical health. And I want to get this all in here before we get our show started today. But uh, we will be doing programs on instead of panic attacks, let's start having love attacks. Replaced fear and panic with love, ladies and gentlemen. And lastly, please, I've been telling you all year, the two f- most formidable powers that you have are logic and imagination. The logic is grounding for you. It's stabilizing for you. It allows you to analyze situations and clusters of information and see whether it's valid or not. And in other words, see whether there's, it's BS or not. And your imagination, you need that to continue to see how grateful you are. It allows you to see the greatest vision for your life and act in that direction. So, uh, Latest developments, because of latest developments, we are going to dedicate this show to our friend Gary, and Mr. Polyafka will tell you that in a second. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we did a, a part of this show uh, last week, uh, and uh, Mr. Polyafka was kind enough to come back again today to finish it off. Mr. Polyafka is foremost an educator, 
uh, and he, he will able to impart health news that you can use. He's a medical professional of the utmost. He's an author. He's a writer. He's an educator. He's an inventor. If you look at the show right up today, you'll see his many credentials. He's nationally recognized in emergency medical services system development. He started one of the first paramedic programs in northeastern United States. He was actually the director of EMS from 77 to 1980 in New York City. As I said, he's authored textbooks. He also is an expert on AED. He's an AED instructor. He established and manages the largest and most successful sudden cardiac arrest response program for the Federal Aviation Administration. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, uh, let's welcome uh, Mr. Frank Poliafico. And um, please, ladies and gentlemen, if you care and you like what you're listening to, please go to podbean.com, download the app, and like uh, our show, Dr. Ron, unfiltered, uncensored. You'll see all 400 and some shows listed there. Uh, we have a webpage with Podbean. It's called doc, D-O-C, ronradio.podbean.com. And you'll be advised of all upcoming shows and live uh, cast where we take uh, questions from you. If, you, if that's a little hard for you to do, please send me an email at docronradio at gmail.com, docronradio at gmail.com, and we'll get you on a mailing list. And so, Frank, sorry I had to get all that in for you, my friend, but uh, welcome aboard. Well, thank you again, Dr. Ron, for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. Well, uh, we're going to continue with our, with, with our subject matter of uh, – what to do before the ambulance gets there. And uh, I, I thought, based on a, a recent phone call to me from you uh, about what has happened, uh, just uh, uh, maybe you want to relate that or it's up to you before sure, we head sure. on. Uh, as Dr. Ron indicated, we have a very close, very dear mutual friend um, who I got a call about two hours ago that he was in the emergency room. So I went quickly to be there and see what I could do to support him and his family. Turns out he was at home. All of a sudden, felt a little weak. When he talked to his wife, he didn't make sense. His speech was slurred, and he collapsed. Uh, she quickly called an ambulance, uh, which she sh- the right thing to do. Uh, he was conscious, so he w- didn't appear to be uh, needing anything other than uh, get him to a hospital. Um, so the ambulance opened the hospital, and they confirmed he had he in fact had a stroke. And the classic signs of a stroke are confusion dizziness, uh, headache, uh, trouble speaking, numbness in in one or more extremity, uh, and slurred speech, not making much sense or hard to understand them. Any combination of those, something's going on in the brain. The the medical science now calls it a brain attack. Uh, I guess to compete with the Heart Association that's been talking about heart attacks for so long. And it is a brain attack. It's the same problem in the heart, only it's in the brain. It's a blocked or open blood vessel that's not allowing blood to get to where it needs to be in the brain. The good news is that there is tremendous improvement and advancement in how we can handle those patients if we can get into the hospital. And uh, in this case, they did. Uh, thankfully, he's doing very well. He's going to be admitted. He'll probably have some therapy when he's done. But uh, it was a good outcome because the right things took place. 
His wife recognized that something was wrong. She called 911. The ambulance came, continued to start care, continued at the emergency department, and uh, Gary's doing well now. But uh, it's going to be a little road to hope for a while because uh, as Dr. Ron and I both know, he's, he's not the confinable type. So telling him he's going to have to sit still for a couple of days is going to uh, annoy him, but he'll get over it. Yeah, dear friend. So, uh, you know, and, and it, it is sorry to say apropos what Frank uh, was speaking about uh, on last week's introduction about what to do uh, when a person has these symptoms. And uh, and thank goodness uh, they did that. So I'm going to ask Frank just to summarize a, a few of the cogent points he made last week uh, and then go on to some of the, you know, the CPR and uh, and. Uh, uh, some of the fallacies maybe that you're hearing about this CPR. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn it back over to, uh, to Frank Polyafico. Hi, thanks, Dr. Ron. Um, one of the first things we talked about last week, and it's uh, important to remind everybody, how do you know you need to call an ambulance? Uh, it shows us what to do until the ambulance arrives, but we need to make that recognition. And in the case I just cited, um, uh, Gary's wife, Bobby, was very quick to make that recognition. Something looks different in the person. Their speech, their color, their consciousness, something says this is a problem. I call it KSO, keen sense of the obvious. It's not right. And we know that, especially about the people we know and care about and spend our time, most of our time with. Um, so when that happens, it's important to understand what's going to happen to you first. You're going to have intense emotions uh, because that's normal. You're scared. You're, you're, you're fearful. Fear is okay. Fear is very good. It motivates us to do things. But fear could quickly lead to panic unless we have a plan. And the plan is bond to you, first of all. Talk to them. Grab them by the arm and shake them a little bit. Gently, you have to thrash them. And if they don't respond, you've got to get to that phone and call 911. If they do respond, you know that now things aren't as bad as you thought they were. And so at that point, your uh, sense of, of fear can be minimized because you know that there's an opportunity to help this person. Um, a lot of times we hear the, the statement, we can help save a life. I don't like to use that phrase because we don't save lives. What we do is give them a second chance at life. There was a world-renowned trauma surgeon who passed away a couple of years ago, Red Duke. Red was at a TV show down in Houston. And when I used to go to Houston a lot, and I would listen to his show because he was so entertaining and informative. And Red had a famous quote, we don't save lives, God does. We just entertain the victim so God decides what's going to do with them. And that really is our mission. Our mission is to respond with ability not necessarily save a life. Give a second chance at life. That's what we do uh, because we don't control life and death. What we control is the opportunity for a second chance, and that's what we're really talking about today. Um, and it doesn't matter why they look bad. In this case, Gary's wife didn't know he was having a stroke. She knew that this wasn't normal. She looked at some of the signs and symptoms he was portraying and realized she, he needed help. And that's really what we're doing. We're not making a diagnosis. The diagnosis says definitively it's this. No, it may not be this. It could be that. But something's not right. We don't have to know the answer. Most of us always want to know the answer. We don't need to. All we know is something's not right. And we have available to us across the country and definitely throughout Florida, here in Pennsylvania, where I am, the finest emergency medical services anywhere. And I can say that because I've traveled the world and spoken at conferences. And I know what EMS is doing in all these other countries that I've traveled to because I always visit them, sometimes at my conferences, talking to EMS people, and they're all very good. But none of them are as good as us. They're good. They're excellent. We, got, we have the edge, and we have phenomenal technology, which we didn't used to have. 
uh, when I started out as a young puppy uh, EMT, uh, actually ambulance then before I even, uh, when I was going to nursing school, uh, the motto was, you call, we haul, that's all. It's not that way anymore. We've got phenomenal care, phenomenal technology available, but we got to call for it. But until it arrives, we have to do something. We can't just count on them showing up immediately because they won't show up immediately. The average response time, depending on which community we live in, is, is eight to ten minutes. Or if you live out in the boondocks, even more. And so it's very important what we do in those first few minutes. Uh, and number one, we recognize that something's wrong. Number two, we call for help. We, recognize, we, we get into that EMS system using the 911 system. Um, if the person, as you said, is having a stroke, which we don't know, we just know they're down, we've now begun the process. Uh, but there's other things that could happen. They, they could be having a seizure where they start shaking violently, and those are very scary to see. Uh, what we want to do is really nothing. We want to support their head so they don't bang them through the floor. But we can't stop a seizure by holding them down. And don't put anything in their mouth. That's an old wives' tale. Put a spoon in their mouth. Uh-uh. Because their jaw is so clenched when they're seizuring that you can't get it in. You have to break the jaw of their teeth to get it in. We don't want to cause more harm. Just keep them calm. Try to protect the head. And as they wake up, there's the most dangerous part for you because they, as they wake up, are going to be very confused. They're going to be embarrassed. Often they wet themselves. They mess, them, mess themselves during that violent shaking. Um, and they want you to leave them alone. No, say, I'm going to get you some help. Something's not right here. Um, and, again, you're not saying what's wrong. You just know that something's not right. The whole goal of helping somebody stay alive is to deliver oxygen to the brain. Because at the end of the day, life can be defined as oxygen to the brain. I have a dear friend, Jim Healy, who was my partner when we started our training business down in Miami. Jim was one of the first paramedics in the country on Miami Beach. And Jim's famous quote was, the life is juice to the squash. If we get oxygen, juice, going to the squash, to the brain, we can slow down anything that's going wrong. And that's the goal. Uh, blood carries oxygen. So we have to get oxygen into the body and get it to the brain. If they're talking to me, they're breathing, and that's good. They're getting their own oxygen. I don't have to give them any. We'll talk about that in a minute we talk about CPR. Um, if they're having chest pain, it could be a heart problem. We don't know for sure. So if they have their own nitroglycerin, give them one, but never more than three. This is a very dangerous drug, and that's three over a 15-minute period. You give them one, you wait five minutes, you give them another one, you wait five minutes, you give a third one. It's over 10 minutes, I'm sorry. Um, never more than three, five minutes apart. Uh, because nitroglycerin could open the blood vessels up too far. Um, there's things that we we keep them at rest. We talk to them. We reassure them. We support what we commonly call the will to live. People who think they're doomed often are. So we have to help them understand we're going to get you help. You're going to be okay. we got to give them some moral support. Very important. Um, the other key thing that we talked about last week was burns. It's a real scary emergency. I think if you ask most people, uh, if you could choose the way you wouldn't die, which would you choose? Most people I've asked that question do say, I don't want to burn. I don't want to burn. Um, and burns are scary from the time we were little children. We've been afraid of hot. You know, Mama told us as we were a toddler, don't touch the stove. We had to see what she meant, so we touched the stove. We said, hot hurts. So we've had this fear of burning for a long time. The good news is most people don't die from burns. And if we immediately act to burn from spreading through tissue, and we do that by cooling. First of all, put the fire out. Somebody's on fire, they're burning, 
put the fire out. Stop them, drop them, roll them, cover them with a blanket, pour water on them, get the fire out. You've got to do that if they're burning physically. But if they've touched something that's hot or something touches uh, touched them, then what we want to do is cool it. Uh, and we do that with water, just plain water. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. We don't, never put anything on a burn, no ointment, no salve, no butter, no lard. I remember patients coming into the ER, coated with lard because they got burned, and somebody covered them up with lard. we got to scrub that lard out. That don't feel good. Nothing on a burn, nothing at all, immediately. Cool it and then cover it if you can. Just keep it so the air's not hitting it, uh, and help will be on the way. Um, if it's a chemical burn, there's an old medical adage we use called the solution to pollution is dilution. And that really is true when it comes to chemicals. So it could be generally household chemicals is what happens at home. Battery acid when working on the car. Um, what we want to do, copious amounts of water. Water, water, water. You can get them into a shower, get them in the shower. If that chemical is into their clothes, undress them. It's not a time for modesty. Get their clothes off. It's trapping the chemical. And irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. The solution to pollution is dilution. That's what we do for chemical burns, whether it's a, a, a large extent of the body or just a small extent, your hand. Irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. That's the name of the game there. Um, one other thing that's really significant that could be a life-threatening emergency certainly is if somebody's bleeding. As I just said, blood carries oxygen to the brain. And when, half, when two or three pints of that blood are out on the floor, there's less oxygen going to the brain. So that's a significant danger. Um, what do we do for bleeding? Direct pressure. If somebody's bleeding and blood's pumping out or, or just oozing out dramatically, you know, put direct pressure on it. If you have a, uh, a dish towel or something to hold pressure because you don't want to touch the blood, that, if not, your bare hand. Uh, now, I don't use bath towels because bath towels start to absorb the blood, and I don't want to absorb it. I want to put direct pressure. Whatever I put there, put on top of that your hand, your direct pressure. Not to stop the bleeding, but to slow it down. Because what stops bleeding is this body mechanism called clotting. The body's blood components called platelets mix with the air and form these fibrous tissues, which causes a clot. Great, that's what stops the bleeding. And as all of you who have shaved your face or your legs know, sometimes we get little nicks. What do we do? Direct pressure. Just hold it on and keep it on, and it'll stop. Now, if it's a bad bleed that's really oozing out or spouting out, then we've got to hold that pressure on for a long time until help arrives. So, again, recognize the problem, call for help until help arrives. Do the things that are going to help oxygen to the brain. Slowing bleeding down gets more oxygen to the brain. That's our goal. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, really important information and uh, and. And and what's in, what's really cr- what's great about uh, Frank Poliafko is he's had on you know he's been, he he has experience with this. Uh, we were both members of a, a busy hospital that had a burn center. We saw this firsthand. We treated this firsthand. So this just isn't book knowledge. This is hands-on knowledge. And my only question to him is: when you call for help, you help. You mean nine one one, don't you? Yes, nine one one. Now if. You're not alone. Call for help. and call anybody who's nearby. Get over here. I need some help. And ask them to call 911 so you can stay with the person who's ill or injured. Uh, but if you're by yourself, and for many of us, you know, I live alone with my wife. Um, she would say she lives alone, but period. <laughs> uh, but the, the fact is, uh, 
yelling for help ain't going to help me. Here, I got to do something. I got to go call for help by dialing 911. If someone's available, I send them to call 911. Tell tell that operator somebody has collapsed. Tell that operator somebody's having trouble breathing. So tell that operator somebody has chest pain. Give them just the information. We're not giving a full diagnosis and a medical history, the basic information. Uh, so you, either you tell that batcher who's highly trained. They could also give you advice, uh, or you ask somebody else to do that so that we get help on the way. The sooner help is started, the better. But there are things that we can do until help arrives. Okay, so that basically, in a nutshell, is what we talked about last week. And that, that program is still available and will be available. And uh, and we're going to continue on with uh, uh, what to do in an emergency situation. And uh, you're listening to Dr. Ron Unfiltered, Uncensored with the uh, guest, Mr. Frank Poliafico. So, Frank, what, what, what? Go ahead. No, no, I just want to ask you uh, where, where do you want to go from here? What's your next topic? Well, the worst emergency we could encounter is someone who's having a cardiac arrest. Because at that moment in time, the heart's not beating effectively and therefore not sending any oxygen to the brain. And life and death is now a matter of minutes, not hours. So we have to act quickly. And we've heard about that for years, you know, learn CPR, learn to save a life. No, learn CPR so you can begin to get some oxygen to the brain till help arrives. It's really not all that complicated. The first thing we have to say when we talk about cardiac arrest is that we're all going to die. I don't like to tell young, vibrant people like your listeners that, uh, but we're going to die. Uh, I have a famous cartoon I use in one of my programs of Charlie Brown asking Snoopy, do you want to go to heaven? And Snoopy says, yes, but not today. Uh, <laughs> we know we're going to go, but we don't want to go yet. That's the key. We don't want to go until we can no longer have a normal, productive life. And for cardiac arrest, most of those people have years of time ahead of them, productive, loving life. It's not Grandpa who's 98 and has organ failure throughout his whole body. But there's nothing we're going to do for him. He's going to be in a vegetable. So we're not going to try hard to keep him in that vegetative state. But we're talking about people who are vibrant, who are active in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, still young people who have a chance to continue life. And what we have to do, first of all, is recognize there's a problem. The problem is for cardiac arrest, they've collapsed. We're seeing somebody who's down uh, where they don't normally take their nap. They're on the couch. They're on the floor. Something's not right. And when you shake them to talk to them, they don't talk back. So we have somebody who's collapsed. They're unresponsive. And then we check for breathing. Now we know there's a problem. And how do we check for breathing? Well, the old days, we hold a compact mirror under the nose. That's not going to work. Um, but what will work, is to take your hand. I want you all to do this. Dr. Ron, you have to be my audience for this because I can't interact with the rest of the audience here. But take your hand, Dr. Ron, and put it on your upper belly, lower chest. Just put Got it, it there. You're, you're outstretched, palm of your hand. Now take a deep breath. Did you feel that hand move? Because your, your chest and belly, well, most of us are belly breathers, especially when we're laying down. You felt movement. Absolutely. So take another breath. Keep your hand there. Feel that breath. Okay? We feel them breathing. We know that they're not cardiac arrest. Your heart, if you're breathing, your heart's beating normally. That's good. Now, I want you to keep your hand there for a minute. Hold your breath like you're in the x-ray room. No, hold your breath. Don't breathe. Do that for about five or six seconds. Okay, now you breathe. Did you feel the difference? <laughs> no movement. <Yeah. laughs> Absolutely. So we, we, we can practice checking somebody's breathing. Say, hold Let me just add. I want to check your breathing. 
Just don't All do right. it on now, strangers. They call that assault. Hey, yeah, uh, five six eight six. Did you try that and did it work? Okay, we have a listener on there. I guess uh, I was just gonna say, did uh, listener five six eight six? Did you try that? Yes. Okay. What do you think? Did it work? You sure did. I was helping <laughs> right. also. <laughs> All right, Frank. We got a confirmation from a listener. Good. It works. And because we don't do that all the time, you know, in the emergency room, we're constantly checking people's breathing. When I worked with Dr. Ron, he had that stethoscope in his ears faster than you could blink, and he put it on the guy's chest to hear, see if he hears breathing. Well, you don't need a stethoscope, and you don't need all the years of medical training that Dr. Ron and, uh, and many of us have. What you need is some common sense, and the common sense is check for breathing. But now, just doing it once is good. You've got to do it several times. You don't get good at something by doing it once. So with friends and family, again, don't do this on strangers. If you get in trouble, I've tried, <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, just put your, say, eh, say, I'm going to feel your breathing. Is this breathing normal? Have you close your eyes? Because when people know you're checking their breathing, they, they hold their breath immediately. Uh, so put your hand there, say, this breathe normally, and just feel that subtle movement. It's a subtle movement. Now take a deep breath, and that's a more pronounced movement. Now hold your breath. Don't breathe. You do that with other people. You do that several times. You're now becoming an expert at it because you did it more than once. So make sure that they're not breathing, or make sure they are breathing, rather. You, ra- you want them breathing so oxygen can get to the brain because breathing brings in oxygen to the lungs and heart pumps it to the brain. In cardiac arrest, what's happening is it's an electrical malfunction. It's not a heart attack. One of the big myths out there is that people have a heart attack and drop dead. No, they didn't. They had a heart attack, which is damage to the heart muscle, caused by a variety of problems, usually coronary artery disease is the root of it. But in cardiac arrest, it doesn't matter how they got into cardiac arrest. What matters is that the heart is now vibrating and not beating. So there's the difference. And I presume anybody who's not breathing is in cardiac arrest, because I don't know why. They could have been a drug overdose, for all I know. They could have had a stroke and stopped breathing, because strokes could stop people from breathing. At this point in time, the only thing I know is that they don't have a, they're not breathing, they don't have a pumping heart. And I want to get some of that blood to the brain because there's blood in their body and it has oxygen in it. Even if we don't start mouth to mouth, which a lot of people don't, you know, get squeamish about doing. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. But as long as we can get our hands on their chest and start to compress. So they're not breathing, they're on the floor, you've called for help, or someone else has called for you, 911's on the way. What you can do is immediately begin to compress the heart between the backbone and the breastbone. Your heart lies directly in the middle of your chest behind your breastbone. I know that many of you got at different events salute the flag by putting your hand on your left breast. There's no heart over there. The heart's not there. The heart's dead center in the middle of your chest. It kicks a little bit to the left, but it's dead center. And if I can push on that breastbone, medically we call that the sternum, but I can push on that breastbone and squeeze the heart because there's elasticity here because the ribs move. You know that because you breathe. When you breathe, your ribs are moving. So we can push those ribs in by pushing on the breastbone. That pushes on the heart and causes blood to start going to the brain. Not the same as when they're breathing and pumping the blood on their own, but it's a temporary solution. It temporarily gets oxygen to the brain. Again, I want to remind you, CPR doesn't bring them back. It doesn't save lives. What it does is it temporarily sends oxygen to the brain. So how would we do that? Somebody's not breathing, helps on the way. What can I do? Well, 
here's how you're going to find where to put your hands. Because you're not sure. And different sized people are, you know, different. Dr. Ron and I are not fully grown yet. We're very short. But we're going to get taller. We know that. Uh, in the interim, we don't know exactly where someone's heart is by looking at them, depending on how tall they are. So here's a way to do it. Take one finger. All right, Dr. Ron, you're my audience again. And everybody in the audience do this too. Take one finger and put it under, I'll say your right hand. Let's take your right hand, one finger up, put it under your armpit. And now draw an imaginary line with that finger over to the other armpit. And right in the middle of that imaginary line, put your hand, the heel of your hand, the, where your thumb is. Just put that right there in the middle of the chest. You're now over the heart. You're right in the middle. You're not too high. You're not too low. You're right over it. You've got a good margin of error, too, if you're a millimeter or two off. Hand over the chest. Put your second hand over that first hand. Get on your knees next to them. You know, I forgot to tell you, you started this. You're on your knees next to them doing this. They're not breathing. You're going to put one hand in the middle of the chest. Put your other hand on top of that hand. And with your elbows locked, stiff, you're going to lean over and start pushing on the chest hard and deep, as deep as you can. So, but I might hurt them. No, you won't because there's nothing more you can do to harm them. They're not breathing. Their heart's not beating. They're in trouble. And we're going to start pushing on that chest rhythmically. You count to yourself, one and two and three and four. One and two and three and four. Not too fast. One and two and three. Too slow. One and two and three and four and five. And we just start pushing on the chest rhythmically. Push hard and push fast so that we get some blood going to the brain. That's what CPR is. It's pushing on the chest to get blood to the brain. Now, now that I've said that, Dr. Ron mentioned this earlier, there's a big hoax out there about cough CPR, and it shows up on the Internet every couple of years. And I get emails from people, Frank, is this true? It's a hoax. You cannot cough yourself to prevent cardiac arrest or to help cardiac arrest. If you go into cardiac arrest, you won't know it. You're down on the floor. In fact, I've met, thankfully, many survivors. As I spoke at the various conferences when I was at the AED Instructor Foundation. I met survivors, teenagers, 20s. 30s, 40s, 50s in terms of age, and they all said the same thing. They described the event the same way. Somebody turned out the lights. There's no warning sign for cardiac arrest. It just happens. And so when that happens, you have to do CPR. You can't cough your way out of that. Uh, and I read the people, that, well, you're driving down the road, your chest starts hurting, you immediately start deep coughing. <laughs> Well, that's the worst thing you can do because if you are, in fact, having a heart attack, and that's one of the things chest pain might indicate, coughing like that, you're just causing more pressure, more damage on the heart. You're causing the heart to work harder. So do not do cough CPR. It's a myth. It's a hoax. Hands in the middle of the chest, elbows stiff, lean over, and push straight down. And keep pushing as hard and best as you can so you can't do it anymore or until somebody else takes over. Uh, that's a very important skill. And for that, I urge you to take a class, take a CPR class, uh, because that's going to reinforce with somebody there in the room with you, uh, making sure your hands are right so you'll feel comfortable that you know you did it right. Uh, you really can't make a mistake, but you want to do it perfectly. So take a class. And there's CPR classes all over the place. They've been a little slow during COVID, but they're all coming back now. And there are even some, some organizations that are doing virtual classes. I've done some of those myself where I do it on Zoom, and I watch people. And so what do you do for a mannequin? I roll up a couple bath towels. So I'm taking a couple nice thick bath towels. Uh, if they have cheap bath towels, use three. Roll them up good and tight, 
and then push in the middle of the bathhouse as though you were on somebody's chest. Not the same as the mannequin when you learn CPR, but it's definitely not the same as a person. But it gives you the mechanism of pumping, of pumping, of pumping. Very important that you do that uh, because the more blood we get to the brain, the better they do. So we check for breathing and not breathing, we start pumping. Uh, draw that imaginary line between their uh, armpits, armpit to armpit. Now you're in the middle of the chest. We start pumping rhythmically and smooth. And, and you do that until, until help arrives, correct? Absolutely. Now, one other thing you can do, if you've been trained, and, and I say if you've been trained because you're not going to be comfortable doing this and make sure you're doing it right, you want to give them some breath. And a lot of people say, oh, put my mouth on somebody else's mouth. That's yucky. It is, if it's a stranger. But if you can't put your mouth on your honey or your child, something's wrong, or your sibling even. Well, I don't know if I do my brother. But the fact is you've got to get air into them as well. Some air will come in as you're doing the chest compression. There's one school of thought out there right now that we can do just chest compressions. If you're going to do just chest compressions and someone else is available, you want them to hold the chin up to make sure the tongue doesn't block the airway. And that's real important. To get the airway open, and we mean the air passage from the nose and mouth down into the lungs, the chin has to be up. It can't be down. Um, and let me illustrate that for you, a very important point. I want you all to take your chin and put it down on your chest as far as you can. Dr. Ron, take, put them both down. Okay, now <laughs> take a deep breath. Take a deep breath with your chin down and let it out. And take another one and let it out. Now tilt your head back about just 45 degrees, sort of the position your head would be in when you walked into your mama's kitchen at Thanksgiving and you were smelling all those great smells. Just get mm. your chin up a little bit into the air and take a deep breath. Much easier because your chin takes your tongue away from the back of your throat. Now, you can't swallow your tongue. That's an old myth. But your tongue, if your jaws relax, your tongue's attached to it, it goes back and blocks the airway. Now, if I'm still pushing on somebody's chest and I don't want to do the mouth-to-mouth, then if I have someone else just hold that chin open, hand on their forehead, fingers on their chin, and tilt the head back about 45 degrees, they're going to get some passive breathing, and that's a good thing. But you've got to get the chin up and the tongue away from the back of the throat. If not, you're only going to pump the blood that's in their body and the oxygen that's in their body, and that's not going to last long. So we want to get some additional oxygen in there if we can. Um, that's what we call CPR. I facetiously call it pumping and blowing to get air in until help arrives. So, Frank, do they, do they still use the acronym ABC? Unfortunately, uh, no, which, which is, that's a good, great question, which I'm upset about because it took me years to memorize that. Um, <laughs> What they did, they found out that people were taking too much time to open the airway with today and be, give breath. The most important thing in cardiac arrest is to get oxygen to the brain. And there's still oxygen in the blood. There's oxygen in the lungs. So we start with compressions now. So the new acronym is CAB. Uh, but forget it. the acronyms. Forget the acronyms. Start chest compressions. Open the airway to get some air in. If you can, to get, if you can, are trained to do this, you push on that chin the same way we just talked about, some of us holding it open. Push on their chin, hand on their forehead. To give someone breath, your breath, you put your mouth completely over their mouth. And one way to illustrate that is to make a fist with your thumb on the outside of your fingers. Imagine that little hole that now goes into the palm of your hand is your mouth. It's somebody else's mouth. Not somebody else's mouth. Then open your mouth wide 
put it over your hand, over that hole that's in your fist, and exhale forcefully. Just two quick breaths. You don't want to linger. This is not the time to develop a relationship. You want to give them two quick breaths so you're giving them oxygen from your body. Say, wait a minute. You know, how do I have oxygen? Because you don't use it all with every breath. With every breath we take, we bring in about 20, 21% oxygen. That's what's in the atmosphere. When we exhale, just normally, when we exhale, we exhale 16%. We don't use it all. It's free, so we don't have to worry about using it all. It's not a very efficient system to think about it, but we're not using it all. So when we give our breath to someone else, we're giving them oxygen, 16%. And what I, what I say to people is bad breath better than no breath at all. 16% is not bad when you have none. So you can get breaths in. Uh, now, this is going to sound silly to some of you, but for those of you who have a honey who you would kiss, I want you to practice mouth-to-mouth on them. I'm, I'm serious. Gently push up on their, have them lay down, push up on their chin, hold their nose so the air doesn't come out of their nose, and give them a breath. You can't hurt them. Feel what that's like. Let them know what it's like to have somebody do that on them. Then have them do it on you. That's giving mouth-to-mouth. Now, there's a big stigma now, well, we don't want to do that this COVID time. If you know someone's fully vaccinated, give them breath. And if possible, put something over their mouth. Uh, could be a napkin. Not everybody carries a CPR shield. But a, a, a napkin, something that covers their face. Don't use aluminum foil. Something that's porous so you can breathe through that if you don't want to put your mouth on their mouth. But when it's somebody you love and care about, that's the last thing you're worried about, putting your mouth on someone else's mouth. So get some air in if you can. If not, just keep compressing. But regardless of what you do with CPR, it doesn't bring them back. Only on TV, only in the movies, does somebody do CPR and they wake up and say, thanks, I needed that. Probably been involved in about 300 codes, and I'm sure you a lot more than that. How many of those people woke up and said, thanks, I needed that? Yeah, one. None. One that I know yeah, of. One. It, it, it's rarely possible, but it can happen. But it doesn't happen often. The point is, the reason they're in cardiac arrest is a condition called ventricular fibrillation, VFib. Not atrial fib, this is ventricular fibrillation. It's an electrical malfunction in the heart. The reason our hearts beat is because they receive an electrical stimulus from within the heart itself. It's a bundle of nerves that literally fires and causes the heart to squeeze and relax, squeeze and relax. And luckily, you don't have to think about it. Because if I had to think about keeping my heart beating, I'd be in trouble because I got too many other things on my mind. I don't have to think about it. Electrically, and that's what it is, it's an electrical signal from these bundle of nerves causes the heart to squeeze and relax contract and relax. And so the problem in most cardiac arrests is ventricular fibrillation. And a lot of things can cause it. It could happen after a heart attack, no question about it. Back in the old days, we thought that was the only cause. They had a heart attack, they threw a PVC, an irregular beat, hit at the wrong time in the heart wave, and sent them into cardiac arrest. But we're now finding out with more AEDs, defibrillators out there, where we're getting early readings, we're finding out the vast majority of people are in ventricular fibrillation when they're in cardiac arrest. And a lot of things can cause that. Electrocution can cause that. A congenital anomaly called long QT syndrome. You see that a lot in young athletes. Um, uh, drug overdose can do it. There's a lot of things that can cause this ventricular fibrillation. The only thing that fixes it is defibrillation. Now, we knew that back in the early 70s when we started the paramedic program. In fact, one of our motivations was let's have paramedics because they can bring the defibrillator to the house 
to the street. They don't have to wait till they come to the ER. And that made great sense. The sooner we can defibrillate, the better. Except what we eventually found out is it didn't make a whole lot of difference when they were in cardiac arrest and they called the medics because the medics' average response time is 8 to 10 minutes. And you've got to put that shock in their body in the first three to four minutes if it's going to make a difference. It's possible it could work afterwards, but rare. The majority of people who, are, who have survived cardiac arrest were defibrillated within three to four minutes. We call it three to four minutes drop to shock. We couldn't do that in the past, but now in the past 20 years, this great new technology has come about called AEDs, Automated External Defibrillators. A computer in that device reads the cardiogram. We put these two big electric pads on the pads on them, like you have when you're having an EKG. Only these are bigger ones, and there's just two: one under the right shoulder and one below the left breast. And with those pads on, the wire goes back to the AED, and the elect. And once you turn that AED on, it starts to read their cardiogram. And if they're in this lethal rhythm called ventricular fibrillation, it will say, "Stand clear. You don't want to be touching them. You don't want to disrupt the reading." push the shock button, and there's a bright yellow or right, bright red button in the middle of all the defibrillators, regardless of what the brand is, and you push that button, and you've just delivered a shock. Just like when the medics rub the paddles together and then put them on the chest to stay clear, you're doing the same exact thing, only you're doing it through pads, not paddles, and you don't have to decide when they need it. The machine will do that, the computer. The technology is phenomenal. Does it work? I've now met 300-plus people who survived cardiac arrest thanks to early defibrillation, 300-plus, and I haven't met them all. Uh, the youngest was 12. The oldest was 72. The majority were in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, the majority. Luckily for us old folks, and uh, I'm catching up to Dr. Ron. I just turned 75, and we tend to die slowly in terms of not having cardiac arrest, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But this primarily affects younger people. And they have a lot of life ahead of them, and we can make a difference. Now, that means there has to be an AED there. Should you have one at home? I don't think so. And the reason I don't is because it's just you usually and one other person. It's not going to work. The, 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 the moment is too, too tempestuous for you to act appropriately and put this on and, and stop doing CPR. So I don't necessarily recommend them for home. I have one in my house. Um, my wife and I are both nurses. And we figure if we ever use one, if I use it on one of our neighbors, but if you live in a community, you live in a assisted living community, there ought to be one there. If you belong to a pool, there ought to be one at that pool. If you belong to a church, there ought to be one in the church. The more people there, the more likelihood there's going to be a cardiac arrest because of just the sheer mathematics, the volume of people there. Those, all public places, the mall should have them, churches should have them, uh, libraries, any public place that has a lot of people going to stadiums. And most of those places I'm talking about have had them. And Florida, to give you a little plug down there, Dr. Ron, is probably one of the best in terms of their public access defibrillation program, putting those AEDs out there. Uh, but the sad news is average people still aren't using them. The majority of people who have been shocked with it with, with, and had early defibrillation, it, because somebody like Dr. Ron or I was there. Well, that, luck is not a strategy for success. You can't count on an emergency medical professional being there. So everybody has to be able to do it. And unfortunately, some of the training programs have scared people, so they don't do anything. They're not comfortable. But this is the easiest technology in the world to use. It's some of the most sophisticated medical technology and the easiest to use. You turn it on, you attach the electrodes, 
and you do what the machine tells you. It prompts you. It tells you what to do every step of the way. There's a voice in there talking to you. So I urge anybody who lives in a community, uh, lives in a town, lives in a city, make sure that your government knows, your leadership knows, we need AEDs all over the place. Because the more of them that are there, the more likely we're going to help somebody if they go down. They, we give people a second chance at life. You say, well, you know, they're expensive. They're about as expensive as airbags are, and I'm glad I have them in my car. Um, you know, we, they're fire extinguishers. We don't hope we don't ever use them. We hope you never use the AED. But having them makes sense. Uh, I don't sell them, so I'm not trying to promote them so I can make more money. I don't stock, own stock in any companies. There's about seven models on the market. They all work. Now, the salespeople thought the other six are killing people. They're not. They all work. So, Frank, let me in, interject a second. Let me, so if somebody's having a heart attack, uh, an arrhythmia, and they go down, uh, they're just – you just hardly feel any any abdominal movement. Uh, you're going to start CPR no matter what. I mean, you're going to start Absolutely. finding that that. And then, um, if you're fortunate enough to be in a situation where a security guard or, or somebody on the golf course brings the AED, uh, you're going to you're going to put that in, and hopefully, you're going to put that hook that uh, patient up to it. And uh, you're going to do that as the ambulance is, is uh, or as the paramedics are on their on their route to to you. Is Ab- that correct? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. But you're you always going to do the chest compression first. You're going to start foremost. with chest compression until the AED okay. is there. And if somebody gotcha. brings you the AED, then you're going to attach it. And it's real simple to attach, easy to learn. So again, take the class. But let let me illustrate again on your own bodies. I want you where these pads are going to go. I want you to take your right hand and put it above your right breast, below your collarbone. So it's on your upper, upper chest. That's where one pad goes. And it'll cover that whole area where your hand is. Now take your left hand below the left breast, a little bit to the side, not all the way on the side. So I'm partially on the chest, partially on their side. Now that's where the pads go. So your hand should be under your collarbone, below your left breast, a little bit to the side. That's where the pads go. And now the machine has diagrams on their pads, so it shows you exactly where they go. It's sort of like kids using those things that my granddaughters do where they peel out of a book and stick them on. I forget what they call them. Um, but it's real easy. It's real easy to use, tensely emotional moment. And that's why training is important because it starts to make you a little bit more comfortable. Um, the machines are safe. They will only shock ventricular fibrillation. There has never been a case in the 25 years of, of data coming in on AEDs, never been a case where somebody got shocked who didn't need it, not one. There have been some cases where they didn't get shocked because the machine didn't work, and that's sad, but uh, usually result, it's usually caused because somebody didn't check the battery on their unit, which needs to be checked monthly. Um, so it's real simple. It's only going to shock ventricular fibrillation. It won't make a mistake. You can't hurt them. And you're going to keep doing that. Once you shock them, the machine's going to say start CPR. You're going to go back to CPR. It's not like you shock them and they wake up. You're going to continue, because even if you fix the ventricular fibrillation, there's not going to be enough blood pressure right away to send oxygen to the brain. So you're going to keep compressing the chest for two minutes. The machine will time you. It'll give you a metronome, beep, 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 or some other crazy sound. And in two minutes, it'll say stop CPR, and it'll do another analysis. Maybe they need another shock. Maybe they didn't need one the first time, but now they do. So we're going to keep pumping oxygen to the brain intermittently, check the heart for rhythm, and if necessary, push the button. But the machine's going to coach you through it. It is an amazing, amazing technology. 
I wish I had invented it, but I didn't. Uh, but it really works well. All right. So you, would you say that this is applicable to someone that's hit by lightning, a drowning victim? I mean, it's not just uh, heart attack victims, right or wrong. Right. It, heart attack is a small percentage. Yes. Electrocution, uh, uh, lightning strike, drowning. Uh, just so many cases, drug overdose. Um, and as I said, a congenital anomaly called long QT syndrome. And here's the scariest one to me. It's a random event. We don't know why it happened. I've now met two survivors who, after they were resuscitated, um, went through all kinds of testing to try to determine why they had a cardiac arrest. And we want to know that because we want to be able to fix them so that they don't have another one or, or deal with it so they don't have another one. And both of these individuals who were both in their 50s, actually one was a pilot who was 50, the other was a 50-year-old woman. They were both 50, as I now think about it. They never found out why they had it. It was a totally random event. So that's possible. The, end of the, the result is we don't know what caused it, and it doesn't matter what caused it. What, what matters is they're not breathing, they're not talking to you, I'm going to start CPR. It's that simple. I, yeah, and, 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 and that's the point we want to get across, ladies and gentlemen. You're not there to make a diagnosis. Uh, you're, you're just, you're just if, 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 God forbid, you're faced with a situation and someone is uh, down in front of you uh, and you, you, know, you do everything Frank said, put your hand on, the, on, your, on their upper abdomen, uh, that if you feel, you feel little or no movement, uh, you're going to just jump in and do the CPR. I mean, it, that, it's got to be that simple. And then uh, if you're fortunate enough to have, to have a 911 call that brings some security with an AED or the paramedics arrive, uh, but you're going to do that, you're going to do that uh, CPR. You're going to make sure that airway is open uh, no matter what the cause. Uh, is that, am, I, am I right in that thinking, Frank? Absolutely. Absolutely, Dr. Ron. You cannot hurt them. You can only help them. You're giving them a second chance at life. That's what you're doing. That's the goal. If I told you you were saving their life and they didn't make it, you'd feel guilty. And I've met people who did CPR and told me, I did CPR, and he didn't make it. And after five years, I felt I, was, I killed him. No, you didn't. You know, or I just said to me last night, I did CPR once, but I lost him. He wasn't yours to lose. Your job is not to save a life. It's to give him a second chance at life. And that's what you're doing. And that's achievable. And once you know you're working towards an achievable goal, you'll do it. If it may or may not work, you're going to stand back and say, I don't want to do this. I don't want that responsibility. There's no responsibility here. Your only responsibility is to respond with ability. Again, I encourage you to take a CPR class um, if you're physically capable of getting down the floor and doing it. And some of us aren't. I'm, I got terrible knees. I don't know if I could get down on my knees say that they're very long because I haven't done CPR in a while. Uh, but I'm good at coaching other people. Um, but some, some of us can't do that. Some of us have arthritis, and we just couldn't – our hands wouldn't be able to move that way. Those are the realities. We may not be able to help them because of our physical incapacity, but most of us can, and we need to give, it that, give that person a chance if we possibly can. And uh, on now, a personal of, note, Frank, on a personal note, I had the uh, opportunity to do CPR on, on, on a neighbor – and the paramedics actually took about 15 minutes to get there. And I will tell you that I was physically exhausted. My, I, I, I don't know how much longer I could have gone. It is really tiring. So, so just, just 
But you know what? I didn't know it at the time, but when they finally got there, I said, wow, I'm glad you got here because I'm tired. So uh, among everything else, take some stamina. Well, you bring up a really good point, Dr. Ron, that I didn't mention so far. And you'll hear the medics talk about high-quality CPR, or they'll also use the term pit crew CPR. One of the things we've learned, even with the medics who are pros at doing this, they can only do it so long. And even though they keep trying, they're not pushing as deep and as hard as they should. It was a big national test, and 85% of the medics and EMTs tested failed the test. They used electronics to measure the, the depth of compression and how long they were able to do it. Um, and what we found is because, just what you said, because it's so fatiguing, not just that you feel tired, you're not working that hard anymore. You just can't do it. Your muscles won't keep up with it. So one of the best solutions is to make sure there's other people around you who know it, and you keep switching off. If we can switch off, so I say, Dr. Ryan, you know, CPR, come over here. Put your hands here. You do it. And then somebody else takes over, and then somebody else takes over. So if we can switch off every couple minutes, wow, it really gives that person a chance because the person taking over is going to get in there with vim and vigor. So very important, if possible, to have other people around who can help you, light them up, and start bringing them in one at a time to take over so that we continually are giving good, deep compressions uh, because you can only do it so long. And, in fact, you may reach a point, and this happened to me just once because it was the only time I was doing CPR by myself. Usually I had other people working with me when I did it, uh, both as a nurse and as a medic. Um, but there was, I had a call when I was working in New York City for a woman that had collapsed, and I got there, and there was this little old lady laying on this day bed in her living room. Uh, and she looked like she was probably about 95, but it turns out she was only 70. I found out later. Uh, but she was cold, blue, and stiff. But I figured – let me try. So I got her onto the floor. And you want to be on a hard surface. So I had to get her off the bed onto the floor, and I drug her onto the floor, protecting her head. Well, as she hit the floor, I got <laughs> she. I caused some air to be expelled from her lungs. Well, that gave me the incentive. Well, she's not gone yet. I can still have a chance. So I started doing CPR on this little old lady. And I only used one hand because she was so small. I didn't want to put my whole weight on her. I just used one hand, which is a technique that you learn when you take the class. And after about six or seven hours, it was actually four or five minutes. I was soaking wet. I sweat so much. Uh, I was exhausted, and I just couldn't do it. I just And I remember turning to this lady and said, ma'am, rest in peace, because if I do one more cycle, I'm going with you. And that's a terrible, terrible feeling to have. You do the best you can as long as you can. That's all that you should expect of yourself, because as a medic, that's all I would expect, would expect you to do. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Mr. Frank Polyofko and, 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 and on practical uh, advice on how to handle home emergencies, especially uh, cardiac arrest, uh, burns, chemical burns, That's fire, fire burns. Yes, you have a question? Yes, I do. Um, we didn't talk about if you were home alone. What if you're home alone? I've heard some Thanks, and I don't know if they're true. I've heard that you should, if you think you're having a heart attack or something like that, that you should try to get to the door and unlock the doors, but do not lay down. Is that true? Not necessarily. Yeah, you definitely, if you're alone, you want to make sure your door's open. You know, if, you, if you're alone and you think you're in distress, uh, get to the door, make sure it's open, and you place the call to 911. But get comfortable. Laying down isn't going to hurt you. You want to be in a comfortable position. And for most people, you breathe better sitting up. 
So it's not that you don't want to lay down. You want to be in a comfortable position while you're waiting for help. Okay. Thank you. Okay. That's a good question, really. Uh, you know, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, if you're by yourself. Again, uh, 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 caller, uh, do that nine one one. If you think if there's a there's a problem, don't don't hesitate to call nine one one. I don't know how do it. First. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how it is out do there today. Yeah. Exactly, but I know ne- I never had any uh, paramedic uh, tell me that they 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 uh, wish the person wouldn't have called. Uh, they they don't they don't care, right? Is that my is that still uh, today? Absolutely true. We have a motto in EMS: better to be wrong than dead right. Excellent. Paul. Okay. If, so if we her. get there and, and you didn't need us, we'll assess you and we'll say, you know what? You don't need to go with us. You know, call somebody. If you don't feel good, call somebody to take you to your doctor. But you're not an emergency. We can make that assessment and make you feel better that you're not dying at the moment. We're all dying, yeah, I, actually, uh, but not at that moment. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's a great point that the caller brought up. I mean, do not be, you know, if you're by yourself or, you know, no matter what, call 911. These are professionals. These are professional people you're calling. Uh, and if, if they have to come out and assess you and give you advice, so be it. But uh, just just make sure you call for help. So, Frank, okay, uh, right thank now, you. The, the older caller. paramedics prefer that you not have something serious because they don't want to work that hard. So they're glad <laughs> they called, and then they're glad they didn't have to work real hard. Yeah, that's, One yeah, other really, thing about medics and I didn't mention this, and I should have, when the medics show up, it's very, very important that you tell them what you saw and what you did because that will determine how long they're going to work on this person. If you say, well, I found him down, I've been waiting for you to come, they're going to work for a while, and if they don't get any response after about 15 minutes, they're going to call into their uh, medical director and say, I think we call this one, and they're not going to work anymore because they don't want to keep bringing DOAs to the ER. We Obviously, we give everybody a chance if there's any chance, but we know no one did CPR. There's no chance because it took a while to get there. So let them know that you started CPR, approximately how long you did it. If you hook up an AD, they'll see that. And I can tell you from the experience of talking to dozens of medics, Nothing brings a smile to their face more than when they go in a room and somebody's attached to an AED because they know now I'm going to get a save. They talk about saves, and that's okay. They can. They're part of the system. But our job is not to save. But they're so excited now, there's a good chance this person's going to make it because they've seen so many where there was no chance. So make sure you tell them what you saw and what you did. Very, very important. Especially if it was witness. Primarily, they want to know, was it a witness arrest or unwitnessed? Did you see them go down? That means... You started CPR right away. If you didn't see them go down, that, again, gives them some information that's not very encouraging, but they're still going to try. And, and how about uh, 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 people keeping their medical information uh, on, on, the, on this, the refrigerator? Do, do the paramedics actually go look at that? No. Uh, if anything, you should keep it on your person, uh, clearly in your purse or your wallet. Um, there's a lot of programs. There have been for years, you know, medical data systems. And now they have them on, you know, you can put your medical data into your uh, medical records online, depending on who your provider is or your medical institution, and put all that in there, medicines you're taking, problems you've had, because they can bring that up at the hospital. To the medic, that's not that important. At that moment in time, the medical history is not as important as the history of this event. So you do want that data to go to the hospital, but it's not that important to the medics. 
And I don't know a medic that's ever gone in and opened somebody's refrigerator. I did that at my mother's okay, house well, a lot, but she wasn't having an emergency. Yeah. Well, but that's the practical information. I mean, people get obsessive, compulsive about getting all their records and putting them here, five pages and whatever. And, I, you know, I, I don't come out and say it, but it really isn't that important at the scene of the emergency. And I, I agree with that. Uh, what, what, like, Frank, there's a lot of things that, that, that you know can make a person go down. And, you know, diabetic, uh, ketoacidosis, or, or the reverse, hypoglycemic attack. Um, it's pretty, pretty hard to, to diagnose that without some medical training. Or how, how do you handle that? Well, with diabetics, you, if you know they're a diabetic and they're still conscious and they're not feeling good, they're acting weak and they're sweating, I give them some sugar to drink, some orange juice, some water with sugar in it, something. They've got to get some sugar in their system. If they are hypoglycemic, they have a very low blood sugar. And usually they know this. A lot of diabetics carry a piece of hardtack candy with them, pop it in their mouth. They've got to get that sugar in. Um, but that's based on the fact that you knew they were a diabetic. Never, ever, ever would you give a diabetic insulin. There is no emergency situation where you're going to look for their insulin and give them some more because that's going to do more damage. So we never give them insulin. If they need insulin and you gave them more sugar, it won't make a difference. A little bit more sugar is not going to make a difference if they need insulin. But they can only get that insulin at the hospital in a very titrated amount over time. Uh, so we're never going to give insulin on scene. We're going to give them some sugar if they're conscious and they can swallow. Don't put sugar in somebody's mouth. And I've seen that cases. I've had people in the ER. They're gargling the sugar. Somebody poured a half a bag of sugar in their mouth. No, if they can't swallow it, they don't get it in their mouth. So generally you want it in liquid form uh, or if they can chew on a piece of candy or suck on a piece of candy, that's fine too as long as they can get that sugar into their bloodstream. But okay. that's the only thing you would do if you knew the person was a diabetic. But that's, again, someone you know and you care about, so you know their condition. But otherwise, if I'm a diabetic and I'm laying on the ground, it's not going to matter to you if you found me and you didn't know me. You're just going to do your quick assessment. Is he responsive? Is he breathing? I'm calling 911. And while 911's coming, if, I'm, if he's not breathing, I'm going to start compressing the chest. Okay, and it, ladies and gentlemen, there's lots of reasons to to, to uh, call 911. I mean, and, and ones that maybe you don't have to get involved with. Uh, if, you're, if a loved one or, or, or a friend is coughing or vomiting blood, if they have a severe headaches, uh, if they're having a miscarriage, you know. Uh, but one we didn't talk about, Frank, is how about choking? Good point. We didn't talk about that. Choking is a defense mechanism where food gets lodged in the back of your throat, way back. You can't see it, and you can't reach in there and get it. And when it's back there, the throat goes into spasm. The body says, I don't want anything getting into my lungs. So it has this mechanism called choking, where it literally squeezes that stuff, that food. Generally, it's food usually, except with kids who put all kinds of things in their mouth. It, put, it goes in, and it holds on tight. At that point in time, the only thing you can do is try to force some air out of their lungs. In the old days, when I was a puppy medic, we would bang them on the back. Well, we found out that didn't help. Uh, that works with little children, by the way, but it doesn't work with adults uh, or, or teenagers. So what we're going to do if someone's choking, how, we first of all have to assess them. The indications that someone's choking is, number one, there's food present. 
99% of choking victims are eating at the time they, go to, they start choking. And they choke because they didn't chew properly. We see this sometimes in the elderly whose their dentures don't fit just right or they don't have the right dentures, and they don't chew right. So they swallow instead of chew. Remember, as young kids, our mother said, chew, 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 chew. Well, that's what we got to do when we're eating. We can prevent choking that way. But if, some, if something gets stuck in there, the throat goes into spasm, the only way to get it out is to force air out. And that's what to do that, there's a, a maneuver developed by a, a physician named Dr. Henry Heimlich where we can literally squeeze on the upper diaphragm, on the, on the upper belly, lower chest, and force air out of the lungs. And finding that place to squeeze is really simple. I want you all to do this. We're going to do another practical exam. I want you to take your pinky finger on your right hand and put it in your belly button. I know it sounds gross, but put your finger in your belly button. Now take your left hand and feel for the last rib on the left side. Now if you get down to soft, that's belly. Come back up to hard, that's rib. And follow that rib all the way around, and it'll curve all the way up to a little notch at the bottom of the breastbone. And what I want to do is make a fist and put it halfway between those two spots. So I find two landmarks, the bottom of the breastbone and the belly button. The belly button's easy to find. Bottom of the breastbone, you've got to feel for it. You've got to practice. Try it on yourself. Feel that last rib and bring it up until you get to that notch. It curves right up to a notch at the bottom of the breastbone. And then halfway, approximately halfway between the two, I make a fist, thumb side into my gut. I take my other hand, put it over that fist, and like I'm pulling for dear life, I pull up and in. It's an up and in motion. And I'm going to pull hard. And the first time, well, I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to hurt him. By the third time, oh, hell, hurt him. You keep getting harder and harder. Now, you can't do that on yourself. You can't get enough leverage to do the Heimlich on yourself. But if someone is choking, and how are you going to know? Because there's food present. They look scared, and they do. They may start to turn blue, or uh, a darker-skinned person, their lips start to turn blue. Um, I can help them, but say, I can help you. Let me help you. Get behind them. You've got to do it from behind them. Put your arms around their belly area. Feel, find the belly button. Find that notch with your right and left hand. Halfway between the two, squeeze up and in. I use the analogy like you're scooping ice cream out of the bucket. Up and in, up and in, up and in. Um, until it pops out. And it's a dramatic procedure. And it's, you know, it's not even a medical procedure. It works. Um, Absolutely. Can, I don't know whether you, you know area. it. I don't know whether you know it, Frank, but uh, without mentioning his last name, uh, Judge Walter, he did that on me. Uh-huh. Save, save my life. I did so, remember that. Yes, yes. Yes. So I uh, it very, very uh, uh, indelibly put in my brain and I was able to no, I, I happened to be next to a woman at a at a hospital function who everybody was talking around this table of ten and I looked over and I she was she was having trouble. And uh you and I both know, you know, you, you have three to three minutes, four minutes without oxygen, but I was able to, to do it with her and it, it is that 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 is a, a very fulfilling uh and generally successful maneuver, the Heimlich maneuver, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. It's but, um, very gratifying to the person who does it and to the yeah. teacher. I've never had to do the Heimlich, fortunately, but I've had several students do, use it and call me to tell me how well it worked. And the most recent was the Mater D at a restaurant where I do their training out in California. And uh, this young lady got behind the woman who was choking. She was choking on a piece of shrimp. And when they finally popped it out, which they did, I mean, it was like as big as one digit on her finger. 
and there wasn't a tooth mark in it. Uh, and they mm. popped it out, and she did fine. Yeah. So I, I think we covered a lot of material, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, just know that uh, this this podcast is uh, available, will be available on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher, uh, Podcasts, just about any place where you listen to your pod. Uh, podcast that you'll find Dr. Ron, it's Dr. Ron, unfiltered, uncensored. I mean, I probably should advise you to even take some notes because this is really important. You know, we talk about you want to be healthy and we want to have our health span uh, get to our lifespan because our, we're living longer but not healthier. But we want to get, get a chance to, to get to our lifespan with, with, with what the projections are. And, and one of these these emergencies might present itself, and you might be ha- able to help someone else to get to uh, to live a little longer. Really important program, and uh, I do implore you to to listen to it. Uh, and and if you like what you hear here, and you and I know you like uh, Frank Palafka, he's a great. He's not only a great friend, but he's a, he's really a intelligent and great speaker. Uh, you know, write me a, an, an email at docron, D-O-C-R-O-N, docronradio at gmail.com. And, you know, we can maybe schedule uh, uh, shows uh, like this. Uh, you know, we don't, I don't take any advertisement. That, that my guests, including Frank, we do this uh, as an educational uh, moment uh, to, to see what, what, what good advice we can give to you. And, uh, you know, we really, I appreciate it. I really, you know, I always talk about an attitude of gratitude, and I really have a lot of gratitude of people that, that, that even listen to this. And thank you, dear listener, that, that uh, called in without, uh, and, and asked us. Uh, but um, I, I, I think we covered a lot, to Frank. What do, you, what do you think? Absolutely. And I want to end by saying when people die before their biological clock ran out, we call that premature death. We're all going to die. What we don't want is a premature death. And one of the good pieces of information to keep in the back of your mind is that when hearts and brains are too good to die, they're too young to die, premature death can be interrupted and life can be extended. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not just trying to keep somebody alive. We're trying to give them a healthy, happy, loving life. And we can make a difference. Uh, some of the things I talked about today, you're going to find online. There are dozens of CPR programs. On Go to YouTube uh, and watch them. Watch, watch what they do. Watch how they do it. You, you can, you, you can, if you don't want to enroll in the class, there's also online courses you can take. There's, there's not a whole lot of opportunity for hands-on, but at least it will reinforce some of this information. And once you download it, you can keep re- reviewing it. You have to periodically look at this. This is not a one and done. I think the dumbest thing that we do in society is require people to be certified every two years. Well, at 19 months into that certification process, they're not comfortable. We've got to reinforce what we learned. And so use the Internet appropriately. There's great stuff, uh, CPR videos, first aid videos, uh, CPR classes, first aid courses. Uh, some are free. Some are, are very inexpensive. Um, and as soon as you can, take a class with an, an instructor-led class. That's even going to give you more comfort in helping somebody continue life. Good advice. So, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dr. Ron Unfiltered, Uncensored with guest uh, Mr. Frank Poliafko. Uh, and life is a gift, ladies and gentlemen. The way you live your life is your gift to those that come after. So make it a fantastic one. Live it well. Enjoy today. Do something fun. Be happy. 
have a great day. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, again, uh, thank you. And uh, to our great guest, uh, Frank. Well, where's the crowd when you need them? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Frank. We'll, we'll, and ladies and gentlemen, we'll, we'll be back again with, with the similar programs if you like this. So we're out for the day. We have our closing number by Mr. Fred, and it's, uh, I really appreciate him writing these, these, uh, the opening and closing number for this program. All right, ladies and gentlemen, be well. We'll, we'll see you next time. Hey, everybody. Dr. Ron is finished for the day. I hope you got some good wisdom for what the man had to say. And it's all about good health. It's the man you got to see. He has a lot more answers for you. So tune in next week when the doctor is in the house. Or when the doctor is in the house. Let the doctor know what's bothering you when the doctor is in the house. Doctor is in the house. Doctor is in the house. Let the doctor know what's bothering you. I'm sure he can tell you just what to do. The doctor is in the house. The doctor is in the house. Let the doctor know what's bothering you. When the doctor is in the house. So if you have a pain, call the doctor. If you have a strain, call the doctor. Let the doctor know what's bothering you. When the doctor is in the house, the doctor is in the house. See you next week.